It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome to Money for Lunch, you guys. It's wonderful to have you here. I want to say thank you so much for always supporting the show. We're going to get started with the quote of the day. Learn to enjoy every minute of your life. Be happy now. Don't wait for something outside of yourself to make you happy in the future. And that is by Earl Nightingale. Earl Nightingale. Learn to enjoy every minute of your life. Be happy now. Don't wait for something outside of yourself to make you happy in the future. Earl Nightingale uh, was a... uh, Motivational speaker. I don't know if you guys can even hear me. It looks like we're having some technical difficulty. So uh, it's telling me my mic is off, but at the same time, it's showing me my mic is on. So anyway, don't know what's going on. Uh, We're going to see if we can get that fixed. So hopefully you guys can hear me. If not, I apologize for the dead air, which, of course, you can't hear. So uh, having said that, we're going to get started with our guest today. Uh, Our guest is Jeffrey J. Fox. Jeffrey J. Fox is the New York Times bestselling author of 13 books, published over 35 languages. His book, How to Become a Rainmaker, was selected as one of the top, as one of the 100 best business books ever written. Fox is the founder of Fox Business Advisors. He has an MBA from Harvard Business School. Jeffrey Fox, welcome to Money for Lunch. Hi, good morning. Excellent to have you here. And, uh, I'm glad you can hear me because I'm no, getting it perfect. <laughs> I'm getting all these big signals from my. Uh, uh, yeah, from my you're system. coming through loud and clear. Okay, well, good. All right. So, uh, interestingly enough, though, your your latest book um, isn't a business book. Is that correct? You just wrote a no, children's book. No, it's not. The, my my next book. Um, it's somewhat of a deviation uh, from my other books, which are these kind of snappy, short, boom, boom, boom business books. Um, I live on an island uh, part of the year. It, it's out in the f- uh, Gulf of Florida, and um, it's a bridgeless island. You can only have uh, uh, feet and golf carts, and it's a great place for people to come and visit in the wintertime. And so someone came from – a family came from Wisconsin or someplace, and with them the fad pet – uh, P-E-T of the year was the Vietnamese pot-bellied pig, and they left that pot-bellied pig named Flash on the island, abandoned him three weeks oh, later. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and Flash learned how to manage half uh, 60% of the island's federal land, so he learned how to you know root for f- food and all this kind of stuff. And people gave him drinks of water and whatnot, you know, visitors. And so um, on the island, there's a, there's a, a grass runway for a small single-engine planes, and that runway is owned by a bunch of families. And Flash, uh, that's his real name, actually, the pot-bellied pig, Flash uh, rooted up uh, the runway and scratched his back on the planes and angered one of the owners who shot Flash twice in the head and buried him in the sand down by the beach. Too bad. Three days later, Flash dug himself up out of the grave. That's the true story. And upon that true story, and upon that true story, I've written this fairy tale, if you will, modern fairy tale for kids around third and, th- third and fourth grade. 
And um, it's a cool book because it's got all these great little adventures that Flash has to go through because he's by himself, he's afraid, he's alone, and he's abandoned. And, you know, those are fears that children have, abandonment and homelessness. And so you, in Flash is what we would call in literature an orphan hero, like Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer, or D- David Copperfield kind of guy. Right. And uh, uh, that's the basis of the story. And a- another part of the book, which I think is great, is that I put a glossary in. It's an illustrated glossary of all the fauna and flora and what happens on the on the island, what Flash eats, you know, and different kinds of birds and things like that. And in the glossary, the word glossary appears as well, uh, so that kids can, you know, look it up and find projects for school and that kind of thing. So that's the that's the latest. Man, that's amazing. First of all, I would have loved to have been there when the guy who shoots a pig twice in the head. Yeah. And then, of course, he finds the pig a few days later, you know. <laughs> It's like a Stephen King novel, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, totally right. Exactly right. And here's an interesting thing. I, I had the book, I've had the book reviewed by maybe 100 uh, kids and students, I mean, target students to their parents and teachers. And the parents and teachers think, oh, it's a little too direct. Boom, boom, he shoots him. And then he's called the mean man in the book, the guy that shot the shot flash. And in the original ending, uh, it's when all the – uh, Islanders gathered. They were going to try to find Flash and create some sort of a funeral burial c- ceremony, and that's when they saw the Flash was alive. In the real book, in the in the book, the first edition, the mean man runs away, humiliated by the laughing and jeering of all the Islanders. But that wasn't good enough for the kids. They wanted a much more uh, vindictive, if you will, ending. Yeah, they wanted more punishment, and so the ending gets a little bit uh, sharper because of that. But that, but you're right. If you were there at the time, and I tried to recreate it because it in fact happened that the guy who shot the uh, shot flash uh, then was discovered that he wasn't such a he-man after all. He was ridiculed in real life. That's good. That's good. You know what? Look, I mean, first of all, I have a soft soft spot for potbelly pigs. Um, and pigs, you know, they're, uh, for the most part, wild animals, and uh, they will root around, and they will make a mess of stuff, and obviously, Flash did not know that uh, he was doing any harm to the runway or to the planes, and, uh, you know, the, the amazing thing about pot-bellied pot pigs, and I think all pigs, you know, they are trainable. They are very smart animals. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and and of course, you know, in Flash's case, he's I would say above average. I don't know too many pigs that could could survive a couple of gunshots. And you know, my take on the I don't know the directness of your book or the graphic nature possibly of the book. And I'm sure. I'm, let me rephrase it: the direct nature. I don't know how graphic it is, but you know, bottom graphic. line is. Uh, Kids are exposed to, I think, a lot more. And depending on where your kids are raised, you know, I don't think they're going to be shocked. Um, no, the, um, what the kids like about the book is that every chapter is kind of like a cliffhanger and stuff. And I mean, it, it's it's it even starts out once upon a time. But I think the, the I think there is a message for everybody um, in that, you know, 
Flash is brave, he's courageous, he's scared, he's afraid, he's abandoned, he's resourceful, he's smart, he's fun-loving, all these kinds of things which create an interesting character that people can identify with even if they're not, quote-unquote, a pig. Um, but the one interesting thing, Bert, was that uh, in real life, Flash was um, tranquilized and moved to a animal rescue farm. And in doing a little bit of research on the book, I discovered there are lots and lots and lots of animal rescue farms around the country. You know, there are rescue farms for retired circus animals. There's rescue farms for abandoned animals. And there are all kinds, leopards, llamas, tortoises, etc. cetera. Uh, that, that I found uh, kind of illuminating. I didn't realize there was so much of that in the, our country. Yeah, you know what? I'm always blown away uh, by how little I know outside of my little bubble, right? I'm always amazed when I find a new industry. And not only is this a new industry, but it's a uh, – it's it's what do you call it? Uh, it it'll have at least one or two associations. It'll have a couple of events, might have some, you know, some – what do you call it? Magazines or something. It's just – I'm just now discovering, but it's been around for, you know, whatever, 10, 20, 100 years. And it's like, man, how are, you know, it's just, it's amazing to me um, how uh, there are all these, um, you know, subcultures, for lack of better terms. Uh, you know, I would never think that there would be a rescue shelter for leopards, for example, or llamas, but there I are, guess, you know. <laughs> so, so, so I actually, uh, Nearer where we have a house, um, there's another island that people know called Sanibel. And Sanibel Island is so, sort of famous. Sanibel has an organization on the island called CROW, C-R-O-W. It's an acronym for, uh, what is it, Care and, Care and Relief of wild, uh, Wildlife or something, Care and Repair of Wildlife. And that's a good little place for, I, I suggest in the book at the end that people donate a dollar to CROW. Um, so that, you know, they can keep up their good work. You know, there's bobcats and, and uh, all kinds of things that are get hurt or, or get abandoned and taking care of them. Yeah. You know, the great thing about the book, um, and, and, uh, and the book, by the way, is being released when? I would I, – I'm not – I was supposed to find out today before this interview – um, I think within 30, 40 days, something like that. Okay. Maybe le- and, and, you know, there's already guys writing reviews and that kind of thing. But, uh, the, you know, publishing at the end of the year when you have lots of coffee table books and stuff like that, the, the capacity of the printing com- uh, companies is, is kind of pushed. So we, we'll see. But it's, it's going to be before Christmas. Gotcha. Before okay. Thanksgiving, Okay, and so just for everybody listening, the book is The Adventures of Flash, an Abandoned Homeless Pot Potbelly Pig. I just love that. And I love the name Flash for a Potbelly Pig. I just think that's adorable. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that um, uh, if uh, – do you know where the rescue is, where Flash went to uh, – Yeah, to somewhere near Fort Myers, Florida. And, you know, Florida has, um, you know, lots and lots of 
kind of spacious areas, you know, yeah. that have not yet been developed. And and some of that area has been dedicated to these large uh, wildlife rescue farms. They're, yeah. they're everywhere, though. They're yeah, everywhere. no, it's amazing. It's amazing. I know that we have a couple here in, in, in the Arizona area that are fairly well-known, um, and uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and there's a bunch in Texas. But those tend to be very, I want to say, common animals, you know, horses um, and uh, and what do you call it, uh, the, the circus-type animals as well. Right. I was, again, not aware of, of, as you said, bobcats and leopards and, you know, pigs and stuff like that. Um, it, it's just an amazing little story, and I hope that everybody will check it out. It's called uh, The Adventures of Flash. An abandoned homeless potbelly pig, um, and uh, that's just uh, we call it just a great story. I mean, <laughs> but I was you know, and, and what I like about this is that it's obviously a story that is intended to help children, as you mentioned, who are afraid of these things or who might be dealing with a mean man or a mean person in their life who might be absolutely you it, know, it's, dealing that's, with a, abuse yeah. or something. Well, that's that is exactly why uh, the fairy tales of old endured so long, until they became watered down by today's helicopter parents or whatever they're called these days. Sure. You know, the you know, the big bad wolf did indeed eat the grandmother, I think. But whatever, yes. and Hansel and Gretel did walk into the forest where they met by a, a witch. So the 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 number one fear of children is abandonment. And when you have a character like Flash, who's an orphan hero, the kids can vicariously live the rule-breaking, the by-themselves, the no-parents kind of thing, safely in the confines of a book. And uh, so that's one of the reasons fairy tales endure. And, um, and you know, there's, there's a lot of references in, in there to uh, what you can learn about the land and the flowers and the birds and the and the albatross and the there's a thing fishing today commercial fishing called long lines and it this is an atrocious fishing method where the trawlers leave out uh lines uh, sometimes a thousand feet or more long and they're covered with little teeny hooks and they just drag them through the water and whatever they catch uh they pull in if it's a catchable i mean a sellable fish it goes into the into the ice. If it's a bad fish, it's what they call bycatch. It's chucked out to the to the sharks. And one of the adventures of Flash is when a dolphin. It's also based on a true story, Bert. A dolphin gets wrapped up in some of the floating long line, and her body is pierced with all these many little teeny sharp hooks and stuff. Hmm. And so Flash is involved in her rescue. And those kinds of things in the book. There's, the, there's a famous Indian tribe. Um, in that's that's now dis, uh, extinct that was uh in the florida area 94 percent of their diet came from seafood and they're called the calusa indians they were large and they were warlike and they were genius uh environmentalists they built canals and berms and things that watched the water and many of the outer islands along the florida coast uh they believe were started and formed when because the coastal water there the gulf is kind of shallow they would dump their they got all their you know their food from the sea and so they would dump shells and turtle shells and 
clamshells and stuff in these mounds, and these mounds attracted the mangoes, and the mangoes kept the sand, and then they built these islands. And there's a the, there's a name of the boat in the book called the Castalusa. I never mentioned the Calusa Indians in the in the narrative, but Calusa Indians are in the glossary. So and, it's, and it suggests the kids this would be a great project, a school project, to learn about the Calusa Indians. Very few people know about them, and they were amazing, amazing uh, indigenous people. That kind of stuff is in the book as well. Yeah, I love that. I love that. All right, so so let me ask you this. How much time did you spend putting this book together? Um, well, you know, it's a great question. I read once where authors will say, because uh, my 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 other books are nonfiction; they're business books. Sure. Authors will say in fiction, sometimes the characters write themselves. R W R I T E, and that was the case with Flash. I would start out with a with a challenge for Flash, you know, a, a problem, um, escaping from the mean man, or helping uh, Rusty repair the injured dolphin. And I wouldn't know how that chapter was going to end, but it wrote itself. I, I know that sounds weird. And I, when I first read that about other fiction authors, I didn't believe it, but I do believe it now. And so it's hard for me to say how long I I took because, um, you know, mentally and, you know, walking around and thinking about it but not writing it was writing it. And so, right. uh, you know, it's it's it, – it, and you have to make it – I think you have to make it interesting. And, you know, pre- precocious th- uh, third graders and fourth graders – uh, you know, you have to. You can't talk down to them. You've got to. You've got to be upfront and use words like omnivorous, which is what pigs are, and that's in the glossary. And um, you know things like that. And I also have to. When I took the, my grandchildren to go to the the movies like Shrek and stuff, and I realized that the writers there have done two things. They have two sets of language in the same words. One set of language is the, the direct literal meaning which the kids get. And another set of the language is kind of a pun that the parents and grandparents get. For example, and I hate to use this up, it's a, it's a fun thing, but for example, in the book, Flash, um, he loves, he, he loves uh, mangoes. And, and uh, the kids used to give him the, 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 you know, the candy bars with their paper. He, he loves those. And the mean man sets a trap for them, and pigs are pigs can uh, hear like mad, but they can't. And, I mean, and smell, but they can't see very well. So he lays up this trap for Flash, where he's going to shoot him with a crossbow. And um, and so it, it's Flash has to escape from that. And um, but at any rate, the mean man he's going back to this double language. He's got his sight set on Flash, and he goes. Tonight's your last mango in paradise. Some people might think of the last tango in Paris. I did. And so if I'm laughing at it, I don't care if anybody else is. But that kind of stuff you have to do as well, I think. So I tried to do that. Yeah. Well, and and I think that since you brought up, you know, um, was it Track? No, what's his name? Um, Flash? 
Uh, not Flash, but uh, the, the movie that you were talking about, the uh, – the... Uh, Shrek. Shrek. Yeah, Shrek. I, I've taken the kids, the little ones, to these, you know, cartoon movies. They love them. And they, yeah. they, don't, they do have double sets of language. Otherwise, a grandparent won't take them twice. Right. I mean, and, and so when you look at, like, like Shrek or any of the Disney animated features, it is something that engages both the children and the adults. You know, oh, my yeah. wife and I will sometimes, you know, uh, our kids are, are mainly grown, and and and, uh, and so they don't necessarily want to go see a Disney movie, an animated Disney movie. Uh, <clears throat> but my wife and I will sometimes go because we know that there's going to be enough there for both, you know, the children in the audience as well as for the parents. And we try to uh, uh, be mindful of the media that we take in. Let me ask you this. Well, what's again, the, the, new, the new one that, to your point, the new one that Disney just came out with, um, it's a redo, the Lion one, Lion King or something like yeah, that? Yeah, Lion King, that, yeah, yeah. That's a great one. That's a great yeah. movie. And yeah, exactly thought, what you said, it's, it's for adults as well. Right, absolutely. Um, and, and so, okay, let me ask you this. Again, you've written 13 books. How did you get over the fear, if you will. I don't know what else to call it, but, you know, when I talk to people and there's, I want to say there's a lot of business people that I've met who have a book in their heart, a business book. I've met several people that have, uh, you know, they, they want to write the next great novel, but they are afraid of the book not doing well. They're afraid of the criticism. They're afraid of being laughed at. Did you have those feelings? Um, do, you, do you still have them when you put out a new book? Again, you've done 13 books. And, and, and so talk about this. How did you get over? It, well, it, it's a good question. And I've actually, there's been a little bit of a hiatus in publishing my business books. I'm going to do another one next year, two of them, in fact, because I wrote, I, I ghost wrote two books for clients mm. who had that problem. And see, when you when you hear people say, "Oh, I really want to write a book," I say, "What'd you write today?" And nothing, of course. So, what happens is that getting started is very difficult. But probably the most important thing is finding what they call your voice. You know, how does your book read? And um, usually, if your voice is somewhat akin to your regular speaking and thinking voice, you're better off. And you'll see these people, and they send them their books all the time. You know, and a guy sent me a book the other day. He said, what do you think, Jeffrey? And I, I said, it's 45,000 words. He goes, yeah, I know. I said, it should be 10,000. And how does he ruthlessly, ruthlessly edit his own stuff, which he's fallen in love with? So what happens to, to writers is they, you know, if they have never written anything, um, it seems to me it's difficult. You see these business books out there, and I've been told this by, by my publishers, Something like 90, 95% of all business books are never read. They've read to 12 to 15 pages, and they stop reading. And I've always been bored to death by the business view in those articles. And, and so my books are written to be read. You can read them backwards or forwards. You could start of the book and uh, – it, it, it would be still readable because my books are really like short little essays on 
simple ideas written simply. I know big words, actually, but I don't use them in the book, and I don't have Faulknerian sentences that go on endlessly. And if you read other business books, you'll find that they do, and they're nuanced, and they're and they're shaded, and they don't come out and say stuff. You know what I mean? They don't say, always take vacations. They're not didactic enough, and they're not to the point enough. They're not pithy. They're not terse. In my view, that's what the modern reader wants. Um, just like the modern fiction reader in, uh, in the 50s wanted Hemingway's kind of stuff. They were, right. they were sick of 100,000-mile page books. So you compete today with television and with, uh, you know, streaming video and all these other kind of things. And so you, I think you got to get to the point. So, so when authors, and you know, there's only three or four reasons to write a book. I think one is to make money, and very, very few authors make money. Unlike right. the eighty twenty Pareto law, it's probably something like, you know, five percent of the authors make ninety percent of the money. Then there's ego. You've written a book, and and that's okay. You know, like mine was, I've had a couple on the New York Times and all that kind of stuff. So that's ego. That's all right. Another reason is to write a book to uh, help your enterprise, it seems to me. Help the business. Uh, help the company get, uh, you know, get uh, more speaking engagements for the writer or whatever. So there's a business right. purpose. And, you know, I think if you know that going in, you're going to be more comfortable. If you know that 90% of all books sell less than 4,000 copies, then you're not going to be brokenhearted if yours isn't, you know. Of course, I've right. got rabbit ears, and anytime somebody writes a, a negative review on one of my books, I go crazy. <laughs> How dare they? Well, yeah, now, you know, it's funny you should say some of this, uh, when you were talking about, you know, writing a book to get more engagements and stuff like that. I remember, I remember talking to Harvey McKay, who yeah. has uh, written several books. He's been on the New York Times bestselling list a couple of times. And, you know, he had, I think, uh, a lot of fun with his book. I, I think that the one that stands out is, you know, how to, swim, how to Swim with Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive. And he had books like that that really kind of captured the imagination. The title was good. But right. he said that the reason he wrote the books was so he could sell more envelopes. Uh, and, and Correct. You know, Harvey McKay, for you know, owns uh, at that point when he was writing these books, was the CEO of a of a large envelope company. I don't know what he's doing nowadays, but this was like 10, 12 years ago, maybe even longer. And what's so funny to me is, up until the time that he said this, I had no idea that he even what he did. I, I didn't know that he even sold envelopes because I done I haven't done any homework. And uh, but we're all out having dinner, and he talks about why he wrote his book, and it was just really. So he could get out in the public eye. Yes, he would get more speaking engagement. And he said sometimes he would do a speaking engagement. Depending on the size of the crowd, he would do it very inexpensively. He never used the word free, but he said I would do it very inexpensively because if it was a big enough crowd and I could talk about my envelopes eventually, then I know I was going to make my money back. So, Well, you know, it's it, funny. Um, go ahead. My first book is called How to Become CEO, and right. I wrote that originally – for my kids uh, really? who were getting toward college and all that kind of stuff. And for the kids of my clients, a client would call me up and say, you know, Sarah's graduating from college. She won't listen to a thing I say. So I wrote this book, 
and I put all these notes together, and I was on the board of trustees of Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut at the time, and they asked me to come and speak, 30, 40 kids, uh, guys and gals who were both varsity uh, athletic varsity winner, letter winners and were good students. And I brought along this untitled, uh, densely typed, uh, two-page kind of uh, monograph. My wife said, what are you bringing that for? I said, well, you know, you always got to give something. And so they said, speak for 20 minutes. I knew that meant 15. And I handed out this monograph, again, untitled, to all these kids. And I said, you know, here are some ideas for you when you go in the big, bad world. And unbeknownst to me, the kids started making copies for their friends, their family, whatever. And the contents got into the hands of a a, a book packager guy, a real good guy. And he said, Jeffrey, I think you he called me. I think you have a book. And I said, why? And he showed me. He said, I said, I've got I to gotta come up with a title. So I came up with how to become CEO. And uh, this was after I wrote the book. And, um, wow. Yeah. And then uh, he called me up and he said a couple of days later, he said, I think I've got you a very interested, exciting uh, book agent, literary agent, and at that time in needed. And three weeks later, she calls me up and she says, Jeffrey, I got fantastic news. I said, what is it? She said, well, we have an offer for the rights to your publish your book in the United States for $50,000. And I said, well, is that Yankees 5, Red Sox 1, or Yankees 5, Red Sox 4? I mean, what does that mean? She goes, oh, that's very good for a first-time uh, unknown author, which, by the way, I'm still pretty much unknown, to be honest with you. And I said, okay, let me think about it. And the same day, and this is this was published, so I can say it, the same day, uh, seven minutes to 12, she called me up and she said, Jeffrey, I got fantastic news. And I said, what is it? She said, we have a preemptive offer to publish your book in the United States, the rights for $125,000. And I said, what's a preemptive offer? And she said, well, if you don't decide by 3 o'clock this afternoon, it goes away. You want to think about it? I go, yeah, I'll think about it. I'll take it. And that's what happened. (laughs) And the editors made only one change in my book. And I had a chapter in that book that was called Fridays or Hey Baby Day. You know, Hey Baby, like in in baseball, like Willie Mays. Hey, baby, how you doing? Well, they thought that was um, sexist. And... And here I have I got wives and daughters and granddaughters and everybody in the everybody I know is I'm not sexist at all. It's a baseball term, but they made me change it. It's the only change they made, which is Friday is uh, something <laughs> I don't know. It's not Friday is Hey Baby Day, but Friday is Meet Someone Day or a banal change, of course. But that aside, right. and that book that book uh, not only made the New York Times bestselling list, but uh, with a couple of other of my books, it, it was number one in Turkey and uh, Russia, Hong Kong, Shanghai, uh, Singapore, places like that. As a matter of fact, it was number one in Turkey for 23 weeks, and I didn't know it. Number one in France. Wow. So, wow. yeah. It, and I, I, well, I basically know, wrote know, that what's Here's what's interesting to me is that uh, your story reminds me of the story of another New York Times bestselling author, uh, Ken Blanchard, with the one-man yeah, manager. Okay, yeah. and so he, he talked about kind of the same thing, where he had written this manuscript, stapled it together, passed it around, and, and you know, people kept giving him this great feedback, and, and, and uh, somebody finally came to him and kind of the same thing. Hey, we think you have a book here, and, and uh, you know, his book is like 100 pages. So, so for those people who think that they need to put together some huge book, I think – uh, the one-minute manager was like the first 
book of its kind, meaning it's like 100 pages, maybe 120 pages, and it was selling for, you know, full price, 20 bucks. It made the New York Times bestselling list, and it was this really small, thin book. And it sounds to me that, you know, like a lot of things in life, that when you are, you know, when kind of like when you least expect it, you know, you, you get this these little flashes of opportunity, and uh, you just have to be, uh, I guess, courageous enough to take them. And, and um, you know, your story is uh, the exception, not the rule, because as you stated, you know, most people, first of all, have to really hustle and, and, and meet just hundreds of people before they get an agent. Uh, chances are they're not going to get offered 50000 especially not going to get offered 125000 for their first book. Uh, and and uh, uh, it's a lot of work. People think that, hey, I got an agent, and I got this great big company. You know, I have, you know, you name it. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Schuster & Schuster. You know, I got this big company behind me, and so I'm gonna, my book is going to explode. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, and they said, hey, if you're not marketing your book, then chances are it's not going to do very well because these giant companies only have so much time to spend on your book marketing. And it's really, no, no, they spend it. no time on it. They spend no time. Yeah. Zero yeah, I mean, time. That, that's go. why it's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing with the money. You know, 5% of the authors get 90% of the publisher's time. And, and, and the publishing industry is not really uh, hard killer business people. Okay. They're, they're more in love with reading than they are in selling. And so, um, and so th that's right. And, and when I p wrote my book, I knew that, my first book. So I was, I'm the first one that came out with the size of the book and hardback, b price between softback and a really big hardback. And, you know, listing 10 chapters on the back of the, of the back uh, c cover flap so that people could get a feel for what's in the book. You can't do that if you've got long, windy, crappy, long story things and everything. So, so all those kinds of things were a sense of marketing. Another thing that publishing people do that's a mistake is they, they believe that if your book sales for one book are lower than the book before, you're done. That's what they believe. Mm. And they have, they, they have really no sense of the things that create a book. I'll, I'll give you an example. <laughs> I was walking through the halls one time with my, my publisher, Hyperion, at the time, and they since been acquired, and I don't even think they have the same name anymore. But they were a part of Disney, real good guys there. And they have uh, on the walls they have framed examples of New York Times bestseller lists with their books highlighted in yellow. Fine. But when I went down there one time, I took a photograph that one of my clients had taken in Hong Kong, and there was a photograph inside of a bookstore, and it had five of my book titles, my covers, five different titles facing out. And I, he sent me that photograph, and I framed it, and I brought it down to my publisher. I said, this is what should be on your wall, not the New York Times bestseller list. This, it's this kind of thing, a picture of all my books, that gets you on the bestseller list, that gets you sales. So that's one of the problems. And, and you know, if you're a big name and all that, and, you, and all you do is the books and you don't do anything else, so to me they're you know, a sideline. They're just part of a – I write them on the airplane. But if you're somebody else, that that's all you think about is your book. You get more time because you're the squeaky wheel gets the oil. You're down there complaining all the time and, and so forth. But the book publishing industry has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And, well, uh, let me ask you this. 
Let me ask you yeah. this, because there have been a lot of changes, and we're also kind of short on time. Based on what you've seen, based on your experience, if if uh, you were going to give advice to somebody who is who is coming out with their first book, would you have them say, hey, take the traditional route, get yourself an agent, and, and do a traditional book deal, or would you say – go and publish it yourself and, 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 and be more in control of it. What would you say nowadays? I, I would say it's a, either one's a choice. And, and the latter one you just mentioned, it used to be called the Vanity Press, self-publishing. That's no right. longer the case. Now the self-publishing is an artful industry, and there are some superb people that help uh, authors, quote-unquote, self-publish. And it's knowing that end of the game that you can really win because some of these self-publishing uh, firms, so to speak, um, they specialize in certain kinds of sales and distributions. Like they get your books in all the military uh, military uh, facilities across the forts and things like that across the world, and and that's a good thing. Or they get them sold through, you know, um, uh, specialty bookstores like like believe it or not. The airport stores. So yeah. something for a new young or old, any new writer to think about. It's no longer Vanity Press. That's the key. It's now a, a new and sharp kind of uh, uh, sub-segment sub of the overall publishing business. Well, and, and, by and, the, yeah. and also, to your point before about the, about the upfront um, money, they don't do that much anymore. The publishers have been burned. You know, they've been burned on the Hillary books and all these things, Hillary Clinton, where they put out millions of dollars and get nothing back. Now, there, sometimes there are blockbusters if someone hits the right political notion, like uh, uh, Mrs. Obama, whatever, Michelle. Michelle. I, I guess her book's a bestseller. She didn't write it, of course, and that's okay, but it's a bestseller. And, and those are rare. Those are far, few and far between, and they don't. most people don't have the platform that Michelle Obama would have. You know, right. and so – and so that's why there's not a lot of um, uh, advances these days. It, well, it's hard. It's really hard. There's like 178,000 or more books published just in the U.S. a year. Sure, so sure. It's and, hard. And, and again, you know, what I have found, at least in the last few years, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the movie The Martian with Matt Damon was based on a book by Andy Weir, and he self-published. And, uh, yeah. and, and so – uh, and then there's, of course, uh, oh, all those legal movies that came out, uh, The Rainmaker, speaking of. Uh, so we have yeah. The Rainmaker, and, and, and I think it's John Grisham. He was self-published, his first book. His and, first book was good, too. And, um, yeah, his first book and, was good. And so, no, wait, he's a good uh, guy, Grisham. Okay. And, and, and so my point being to our listeners is that I think – this is, again, my opinion. I, I, I think that, you know – you have to look at this as a business. You have to look at it as a long haul, a long game. And, you, you know, okay, so you, writing your book or publishing your book, you know, what, you know uh, let's say you, you upload it to Amazon and it's a, uh, what do you call it, uh, one of the uh, self-published book on Amazon. Right. You have to be willing to invest the time and money and energy like you would in any business to get that book in the hands of the right people do the stuff that you're doing, which is, are these interviews. You, maybe you give some copies away to against the right people. Maybe you, you, you do some speaking. You do some YouTube. But you really got to work at it 
Otherwise, right. it, you know, it's all marketing. Nobody knows your book. Like you said, look, you've got 13 books out there. And, right. and, and as you said, you, you know, quoting you is that you're still not that well known, but you've got 13 oh, no, books not. And, and the New York Times bestseller. You know, it's funny. To, and, you know, sometimes it, um, people let their ego get in their way like me. I wrote, I wrote a book, a great one of my great little books called Rain, R-A-I-N, what a paper boy learned about business. And it's a, a series of adventures that Rain, he's the name of the paper boy, goes through. He's a 13-year-old paper boy. Well, I just assumed, I let my ego get in the way. I assumed that because I have the best sellers, um, How to Become a Rainmaker and Secrets of Great Rainmakers, and Jeffrey J. Fox, so I put on their Rain what a paper boy learned about business, Jeffrey J. Fox, people didn't make the connection that Rain was the kid's name. And so I, I, my ego got in the way. I just thought everybody would flock to the book because they know me. Well, they right. don't. And so um, that was a mistake. It's a great little book, by the way. It won, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Audis. Audis are like the, you know, like for, 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 for books, they're like the – they're like the if the Grammys, for example – are a hundred, uh, the Audis are a one. But that aside, um, Rain, what a paperboy learned about business, won the Audis, the best business book of the year when the year came out. Oh, I love it. Listen, so, we're out of time. I would love to bring you back in a few months, get a, uh, find out how uh, the Adventures of Flash and Abandoned Homeless Potbelly Big is doing, maybe talk more about some of your other books. Uh, Jeffrey, I want to thank you so much for stopping by and wishing you the best of luck with the, with the adventures of Flash. Well, thank you very much, and all the best to you. Happy to come back anytime. All righty. Good stuff all the there. From, from Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com.